You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 36. Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today in the show, we're talking with filmmaker and conservationist Ben Masters. Ben recently completed work on his film Unbranded, a feature-length documentary about a 3,000-mile trek across the American West on horseback that Ben took with three of his close friends. And the catch to all of this is that all of the horses they took with them and rode on the trip were wild Mustangs. The film Unbranded is still touring the country on the film festival circuit, but will be released in theaters coming up pretty soon here on September 24th. So if you dig this interview, be sure to check out the film's website at unbrandedthefilm.com to see if it's coming to a theater near you. Now let's jump into this fascinating conversation about wild horses, long-distance travel, and the amazing wilderness of the western U.S. All right, I am here with Ben Masters, who is a filmmaker and a conservationist. Uh, how are you doing today, Ben? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, so, Ben, you've become pretty well known because of your role in this new film, Unbranded. So I'm thinking maybe you can just start off by giving us uh, maybe just a quick synopsis of the film and explain what your role was in this project. Okay. Um, Unbranded is about these four guys. Um, One of them is myself. And we graduated from Texas A&M and decided to go on a 3,000 mile pack trip from Mexico to Canada through uh, through what what we tried to find was the most backcountry route left in the American West, and we used um, horses that we adopted from the Bureau of Land Management. Uh, we we adopted them and trained them and. Um, then rode them from Mexico to Canada. And the movie is about that entire process and some of the absurd things that happened along the way. Um, yeah, it was a blast. The movie is a lot better than, than our wildest dreams whenever we first had, had the idea of, of making it. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. Awesome. So, so you've had you've you've had a lifelong interest in in, in horseback riding, um, and and also just exploration in general in the natural world. Um, I, I guess I'm just wondering uh, if you can track these interests back. You know, where did where did they first come from? Are, are there sort of like a moment in childhood that stands out that that maybe led to this down the road? Um, I I, I didn't grow up with horses, and I didn't grow up with a lot of land access either. Um, you know, in Texas, everything is, is, is private land, which has a lot of benefits, but, um, you know, public land, you have the ability to, you know, just go for days and really explore and, and you're not hindered by, uh, 50 acres or hundred acres or 10,000 acres, you know, in the West, you've got literally millions and millions of acres, and I remember on a backpacking trip whenever I was, I think I was 15 because I wasn't old enough to drive. And I just thought it was so cool 
that we went into Colorado and we hiked for like 10 miles and there wasn't any roads and there wasn't any, you know, it was actually just, just wild land. It was just land. And I thought that was really neat. And it kind of created this, um, this passion that I have for, for seeing, you know, that, that kind of country while it's still that way. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's, it's really interesting. You know, I, I sort of have a similar experience. Um, I mean, I grew up in, in the northeastern U.S., um, which is similar to Texas in the sense that, you know, the vast majority of the land is is private and you don't have these vast expanses of public land where you can just roam and explore. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a little different in your case because I think a lot of people think of Texas as a part of the West um, and it seems a little more maybe unusual that, uh, you know, such a large percentage of the land in Texas is privately owned. Uh, but it's neat to hear that you had that sort of similar experience to, to I had when I first came out West of just being blown away, totally amazed by the, the amount of open space and the ability to just get out there and explore. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> I, I, I split my time between, uh, Texas and Montana now. And, um, yeah, it's it's pretty nice. You don't have to worry about where you're going to go hunting. You don't have to worry about what you're going to do. There's literally limitless amounts of places to go and see and explore. And, you know, I think it's good for you physically to uh, to have access like that. So I'm, I'm wondering where, uh, how, how were you first introduced to, uh, to, to horses and, and horseback riding? You know, if you grow up in Texas, there's a really strong you know, Western culture there, especially in Amarillo where, where I grew up. So I, I had a little bit of experience with horses growing up, but not a lot. I got my really, really got thrown into it whenever I was 19. I went and worked for an outfitter in Colorado. I, I, I lied. I told him I had a lot more horse experience than I did. <laughs> went up there and started working for him and just, I uh, had no choice but to learn fast and really, really fell in love with it. We did uh, a lot of pack trips into uh, Rocky Mountain National Park and took a lot of bunch of, bunch of guest rides up there and, and just kind of fell in love with, with riding horses in the mountains. So this track that you document in the film Unbranded, um, th- this wasn't your first long distance uh, sort of trek on horseback, was it? I mean, maybe you could sort of tell me a little bit about that first experience you had with sort of traveling long distance on horseback? Yeah. In um, 2010, I did a 2,000-mile trip along the Continental Divide with two other friends. We went from um, just north of Santa Fe all the way to Canada and had a blast, man. We had such a good time. Um you know, everything, memories grow fonder with time. There was a lot of times we were absolutely miserable, but we finished that and it kind of, you know, it, I, I would, I don't know if I would say that trip changed my life, but it, I definitely learned a lot. I was really surprised that how much open land there still is in the West. Um, I think that's really cool. And then, um, you know, just had a wonderful experience and that was kind of the instigation of wanting to do it again and to do it the second time to document it 
through a documentary film. Gotcha. Yeah, there's there's definitely something very, very special about a long distance trek like that. Um, and I, I don't have any experience doing that on horseback, but um, I do think of myself as a long distance hiker and, and, and backpacker. Um, and I've done a few long distance uh, hikes on the Appalachian Trail um, in the Northeast. Um, and it's it, it's an experience that's that's hard to convey, you know, but but I definitely understand that desire to sort of show folks what that's like and what it's like to to you know live in these amazing remote places for extended periods of time i mean th- these these um these wild places become your home right yeah i really like the simplicity of life but also the consequences that you make are also you know big decisions you know you don't you don't make idle decisions whenever you're doing a, a big trek because then you have to backtrack, you have to do this, you have to do that. And, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of things. I, I think I'm a better person because of it. And I think, I think more people, um, I don't, I, I don't know anybody who's ever done a long ride or a long backpacking trip that regretted doing it. But I know a lot of people that regret not doing something like that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Um, so, I'm wondering, and so this this first long distance trek that you did along the Continental Divide, um, I mean, this this is how you were first introduced to these issues surrounding wild horses uh, here in the American West. Is that right? Uh, that's correct. Yeah, we we didn't have very much money to do the trip, so uh, we went and adopted some some of the wild horses from the BLM, and and they did a great job. I mean, what were you expecting when you first adopted these wild horses? And, you know, how did, you know, what played out? I mean, was, did, did it, did that meet expectations or were there surprises? In 2010, on our first journey, we used uh, three uh, of the Mustangs and, and they, they all, they all did a good job. We also had one of the guys that did the trip with us was really, really handy with horses and he was the person that was working with them, not me. Um, so I didn't really get a lot of training experience in there, but I got enough experience to realize that um, I don't like to get hurt, and I don't—I'm uh, not skilled enough as a horse trainer to to safely work with a wild horse. So on the unbranded ride, we went and adopted our horses along with two professional trainers. And then they put the first 30 days of training on the horses for us. And they, they did it through a program called the uh, trainer incentive program where people or where the Mustang heritage foundation pays the trainer to put the first 30 days on the horses uh, to make them more adoptable for, you know, the general public or the general horse user. Um, you know, they're a lot easier to take from there than totally wild. But I would say that some of the things that surprised me um, whenever we went to go pick out the horses is a lot of them are really small. A lot of them are, you know, in, in my opinion, too small for um for a rider like me, you know, the general rule is that uh, about 25% of the horse's weight is what you want it to carry. And, you know, a lot of these wild Mustangs are 
700, 650 to, to 800 pounds. And by the time you put a 160-pound human, a 35-pound saddle, and then 10 pounds of gear on it, you know, you're really pushing that size limit. So one of the most difficult things that we came across was trying to find horses that that were big enough to to do the trip. And you know, I would say probably, oh, I don't know, maybe – 80% of the horses that, that we looked at in Hutchinson, Kansas were, um, a little bit small for, 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 for my taste at least, uh, or to meet that 25% rule. So, I mean, what, uh, what, what challenges did you face on this trip? I mean, this trip that you document in the film Unbranded, um, I mean, what, what challenges did you face sort of specific to this sort of central tenant to the story, which is the fact that you were relying on, these wild horses uh i mean the horses had a, a few months training on them by the time we started but they were they were not um they they, they still had some pretty green tendencies they uh, i mean you know on the third day the director phil baraboo he got kicked and he got taken out of commission for like two weeks had to go to the hospital and had like this you know it almost snapped his femur oh wow um you know one of the other guys the opening scene in the movie is is the other ben you know it was like i don't know seven days into the trip and he got punched right in the face um by this horse um you know, they, uh, they, you know, they were, they were still pretty green. Um, you know, I think Tom got kicked on the first day by my gray horse. Yeah, they were, they were pretty, <laughs> 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 uh, it was a handful of those, those first few weeks. We were really, really on our toes. Um, and and trying to be really careful around them because they just weren't accustomed to a lot of stuff. And some of the horses have a tendency to kind of bolt and other horses have the tendency to flee. So, or to, to kick. And we, uh, we, we just had to be really careful those first few weeks, especially. And then I would say about three weeks or maybe a month into it of doing, 20 mile days um, consecutively and being unloaded and loaded and just spending constant time around people, they really started getting into the groove and, um, you know, just constantly improved until by the end of the trip, they were incredibly trustworthy um, teammates is, is what they were. They, they were, they were phenomenal horses and they still are. They're, they're still getting better. And so where, where are those horses now? I mean, are they still in, in, in your care? Yes, I have six of them. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I, I guess I'm wondering if you had sort of a goal at the outset to raise a certain amount of awareness about this issue surrounding wild horses um, in North America. Yes, undeniably. That was the main reason why we used Mustangs. Uh, actually I take that back. I think 
the main reason why we used Mustangs is we didn't have a lot of money. And <laughs> right. you can literally go and choose from hundreds uh, of, of what you want. So we were able to pick out really good stock um, based on both physical and, um, you know, the herd dynamics. We were able to, to pick out good horses. Um, but, you know, we, we really wanted to show the, the wild horses as, you know, what they are. There is a lot of misinformation about them. And we wanted to show that some of them are really great horses and they can be incredible animals, but there's also some really big problems with wild horse management right now. Uh, and there's not as easy solution and it's super complex and it's not black and white. And there's a lot of really passionate people that want to, um, you know, that, that think that their interest group should, you know, have priority of the rangeland, whether that's an advocate or a rancher or a wildlife biologist, you know, really the wild horse issue is a symbol of, you know, public land management at large. You know, you have a lot of interest groups that are, you know, they all think that they have their idea of perfect management and, you know, really it has to be a compromise somewhere in between. Um, so we tried the, the approach that we took, uh, in the movie and, and also in the book that I wrote was trying to show all sides and trying to present the information as accurately and fairly as we could so that the viewer would watch it and get educated and want to learn more. And then also, you know, if they were a horse owner to consider adopting a wild horse, uh, just seeing the success that we had with ours and the, the feedback that we've gotten from the, from the movie thus far is that we accomplished that goal, which I'm, which I'm very proud of. So I kind of want to, you know, I I definitely want to delve into uh, some of this controversy surrounding this issue over wild horses. Um, But I I think maybe we should start with just a little bit of background. I mean, I'm sure you learned a lot about um, this situation. And as you said, you know, it's, it's it's a lot more complex than it maybe appears on the face of the issue. Um, I mean, what, what would you say, you know, just to sort of give someone, uh, some, some basic background information on, on this issue and this controversy? Yeah, basically, you know, in a nutshell, what happened is, um, the, the modern day horse, you know, Equus Cobias, its ancestors, um, you know, evolved and adapted in North America and then were extirpated or went extinct on the, in the Americas, um, you know, in between like 10,000 and 14,000 years ago. And they crossed over the Bering land Strait where they were domesticated by humans. They think somewhere between like 3000 and 6,000 years ago. And then other humans were like, damn, that is awesome. I'm going to go catch one of those too. <laughs> so, you know, uh, horsemanship, horses kind of spread throughout, um, you know, Asia and, and Europe and the Middle East and Africa. And 
as they spread, breeds were were developed uh, depending upon you know the environmental factors of that landscape, and then also uh, through through selective breeding. And then um, I think it was Hernan Cortez and like 1520s, I believe, whenever whenever he went and, and took over uh, Tenochtitlan, um, that was the first time that horses came back into North America. So they've been they've been on the continent for about 500 years, and then um, um, so, anyways, that those original Spanish horses were the first ones to, or, or the Spanish brought horses to North America first. And then, you know, as they did their big explorations, um, all over the continent, they did lose horses, horses escaped, horses were stolen, horses were left places for them to breed so they could come back and they would be able to find them and have horses. And, um, you know, inevitably some of them turned feral and, you know, went out onto the landscape and um, weren't owned by anybody. They weren't controlled by anybody. And they, um, uh, they, they just turned into these, to these wild animals that were roaming around all over the place. Um, so that's, that's the origination of horses that were brought over. And then, you know, as, um, you know, Northern Europeans came. They also brought like big draft horses and they took those West with the farmers, the cavalry. They, they liked these thoroughbred type horses. So, you know, you had horses from different parts of the world that all came into, um, you know, the Americas during exploration. They introduced genetics, they introduced bloodlines and they, and some of them got loose. And then these, these wild herds, that have been uh, living on the American West for, you know, three, 400 years or so uh, have had a constant influx of new genetics. And they've also had natural selection towards, um, you know, towards the environment of the West. And, you know, where only, only the, the most fit survive, not necessarily the biggest or the meanest, but the ones that, that, that pass on their genetics and, you know, it's created an animal that, um, you know, isn't a particular breed, but it's just kind of a, a melting pot that's symbolic of all the, uh, influences of Western expansion and settlement of the Americas. Yeah. And I, I love that you start off, um, by talking a little bit about, the evolutionary history of, of, of horses. Um, because I, I think it's a really fascinating and, and also important point to make that in evolutionary terms, horses have been absent from the landscape in the Americas for, for a relatively short period of time. Um, you know, they were here for millions and millions of years. They were wiped out around 10,000 years ago, um, you know, during the Pleistocene extinctions, which were arguably caused by humans. <laughs> um, and then they were brought back again by humans. And so it only makes sense that they would reestablish these wild populations. First thing, though, is, is whether it's elk or cattle or 
horses or sage grouse. You know, if there's too many of one species in an area without a controlling variable, then they can cause rangeland degradation. And, you know, I think that as a society, we need to manage our landscapes. You know, we need to put the health of the lands long-term health as a priority. So whether it is too many cattle or horses or, or elk or deer or whatever, you know, you have to, you know, because we've manipulated uh, the environment so much that and there's cases where we have to manage population sizes, you know, that's just undeniable. And I, I don't think for, from what I understand from doing all the research with uh, wild horse advocacy groups, you know, everybody is in favor of limiting population sizes um, in one manner or the next, you know, definitely what we're doing right now isn't working out. But yeah, it, it's, it's tough to say that horses are a native species, you know, uh, to make that claim is, is, is a pretty, a pretty big claim. You know, a lot of people refer to them as feral. A lot of people refer to them as invasive, uh, introduced. Some of them claim they're, you know, they belong here just like a white-tailed deer does. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's tough to say, like, yes, it belongs because, um, you know, should we also reintroduce African elephants because mastodons used to live in, in, in North America? Um, you know, that's, it's, it, it's, it's, it's really tough. Uh, you know, we, we went and interviewed a guy named Gus Cawthorn in at Texas A&M University because really the big you know source of the wild horse issue is is what they are you know are they a native species that belongs on the western landscape um and Dr. Cawthon was or he's a geneticist at Texas A&M University he's uh, taking blood samples for like 60,000 horses, including, uh, about 10,000, about 10,000 Mustangs or wild horses at the BLM has sent him hair samples. And, you know, he doesn't have a direct answer to it, but, you know, from, from his genetic research, you know, before the horses were brought back to North America, there was, you know, hundreds to, a thousand years maybe of artificial selection that didn't really change the animal. Um, but it's not, you know, I, I don't think it's fair to say that the horses that exist on the Western landscape today are the exact same animal that existed 10,000 years ago. That's pretty much what he told me, um, from a geneticist standpoint. Um, so I don't I don't know if the argument that you know that they're a native species um, is is one it certainly hasn't held up in court yet. I know there's been quite a few pushes to get it onto the Endangered Species Act, uh, but right now uh, no one has has been successful. It's it's a complex issue for sure, um, and it's definitely made a lot more complex by. Um, when, when you look at the evolutionary history of the species and, and you look at the fact that, you know, even though there were, you know, there was some type of horses present in the North American landscape, 
for for many millions of years, you know, there is this separation of, uh, you know, thousands of years where they weren't there. And the ones that were introduced are certainly not the same as the horses that were present 10,000 years ago. So there's there's a a lot of complexity there, um, which, you know, in in, in my mind makes it makes it a very makes it a fascinating issue. Um, I I think it's a big part of why your film is so compelling. Um, So sort of getting back to the film itself, um, I'm curious to hear more about some of sort of the logistical details uh, that you had to deal with in in organizing a trip like this, and but but also in in shooting footage of a trip like this. Um, and and I imagine it must have been extremely difficult to film um, in in a lot of these really remote locations. Yeah, we we uh, the the trip took five months and six days. And we broke them into about seven to 12 day segments that began and ended uh, at a ranch that we had contacted prior and said, hey, can we crash there for, you know, two days and resupply and let our horses have a break, put new shoes on, that kind of thing. And uh, during those breaks, we would alternate out our cameramen, which were mainly Phil Baraboo, Corey Kazmarek, and Dan Thorstad. So, um, you know, one cameraman would go with us for 10 days, and then uh, we'd come to a break, and then, and then a different cameraman would come with us for 10 days. And as they alternated out, we had different sets of batteries and cards. So while cameraman A was filming, cameraman B was dumping cards, uh, charging batteries, and preparing for the next segment. Uh, so that's kind of how we how we coordinated the shooting logistics. Um, we had cameras on our saddle horns, actually, like these little sling bags that we always had, you know, DSLR-type cameras ready to rock and roll. Then we had a, a really nice film camera that we customized a um a little carrying case for it to sit on top of one of the pack horses so that all we had to do was step off and go to the pack horse open up the strap and then we had access to to the nice camera so yeah if anybody out there needs some experienced horse packing cameraman give us a call (laughs) (laughs) we we had a lot of trial and error there are a lot of logistical difficulties to, to shooting a, a trip like that. And especially, you know, getting the quality and the amount of footage that you need to, to tell a story like this um, and, and to tell it, you know, in, in this very sort of complete and comprehensive way. We did a lot of planning before the trip started on the logistics of the trail and we actually stuck to our route for probably 70 to 80 percent of the time maybe more um so you know proper planning prevents piss poor performance well we tried to plan it out as good as we can and really glad that we did but uh yeah, we had to make some some hard decisions and just kind of do it on the fly and, and trust each other and trust the horses. And, you know, thankfully we got there without killing anybody. <laughs> so I wonder if there are any 
amazing moments and anything that really stands out that happened along the trip that, that you weren't able to, to document for the film that, you know, you, you, you didn't have the opportunity to, 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 to capture. You know, surprisingly, we captured most of the really intense moments. Um, um, I wish that we had captured, I got, I got punched in the, in the shoulder by a horse uh, whenever Phil got kicked in the leg, oh, I would love to have that on film. <laughs> um, but but most of most of the really big events that happened, we were fortunate to have a cameraman there along with us. Like when you watch the movie, it's it's very full of drama and intensity and excitement. But really, it's pretty much all the drama that happened for you know a 90 or a six month time period. Um, but yeah, we were, we were pretty lucky to, to capture most of the stuff on film. So you, you, you wrote and published a book about this experience, uh, in, in addition to the documentary. Um, I guess I'm wondering which idea came first and, and which, which medium do you prefer to work with? So the only reason why I wrote a book is because I promised it to our Kickstarter donors and I had no idea how to write a book. And I was incredibly lucky to find Texas A&M University Press to publish it. And I, they probably only did it because, um, you know, I'm an Aggie, but they, you know, I went in there with, you know, a bunch of sloppy loose papers pretty much and a bunch of unedited photos and they, they broke it down into small steps and, um, you know, told me what to do and when to give them this and when to give them that and, and how to make it happen and, and really helped me through the, the book creation process and helped me organize my thoughts and freed me up to where all I had to do was sit down and just write down what happened. And, uh, the book turned out, uh, really good. I'm, I'm very proud of it. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's informative. It has voices of everybody on the trip. It's got the best of the photography from the trip and it has Texas A&M university presses, um, you know, publishing magicians to edit it and design it, and color it. It's, it's really, really beautiful. I'm, I'm, uh, very, very proud of that book and, and honored to have such a, uh, you know, a university press put it out and I've had pretty good, pretty good responses from it. Um, you know, I don't know if I prefer film or prefer, prefer you know, a book, you know, both of its storytelling. I think film is, you know, film, you're, you can only use what was captured you know, with the book, you can write down stuff that you may or may not have on film. So writing is, uh, in a way, I think, kind of frees you a little bit because you're not, you know, you can talk about whatever you want to, um, which in a way makes it easier, but also makes it more competitive because everybody else can talk about what they want to as well. Um <laughs> But yeah, filming, I mean, there's just so much that goes into into making a video. It's the audio, it's the sound, it's the colorist, it's the cameras, it's the cameramen, it's the producers to get them there. I mean, it is a massive 
team effort to to make a video. My next question is, um, you know, just sort of where folks can go to um, to to check out the film and to to buy the book and just learn more about this story. Yeah, definitely. We're going to release in theaters um, on September 25th, and we're going to do it all over the country. Um, Our opening night will probably have about 50 or so theaters. So the best place to to find information is unbrandedthefilm.com. If you go there and and check it out, we also have Facebook and Instagram and um, other social media where you can where you can check out um, the film as well. Fantastic. Well, um, yeah, I look forward to um, to seeing it in, in, in a theater. I, I, I hope it comes around to one of our theaters here in Boise. It's fantastic chatting with you, Ben, and great to hear all about this amazing adventure that you had and to sort of discuss some of these uh, really fascinating wildlife and conservation issues that, that, um, that, that this story brings up. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's definitely a really interesting and unique way to sort of get some of these messages across. Um, so yeah, thanks a lot for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge and your stories. Well, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's a treat and hopefully I wasn't too long winded. All right. That was our conversation with filmmaker and conservationist Ben Masters. I love that Ben has found a way to blend the drama of this amazing adventure with the extremely complex issues surrounding wild horse management in the West. As we discussed in the interview, the management of wild horse populations is highly controversial and anything but simple, especially when you take the evolutionary history of the species into account. This is what good wildlife and conservation-oriented filmmaking is all about, taking a complex issue and finding a way to make it compelling. Ben has absolutely succeeded in this effort, and it's great to see all the praise that he's been getting for his film, Unbranded. If you want to learn more about the film and the book, be sure to check out the show notes page for this episode where we'll post the trailer and have more information on upcoming screenings. Those show notes can be found at wildlandsinc.org slash EOC36. And the website for Ben's film is unbrandedthefilm.com. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors.